Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 418, The Bucket and the Moon. In 1976, an academic named Nishikawa Kyotaro published a book, which is what academics are supposed to do, so not particularly remarkable in a lot of ways. The subject of this book was the chinsol, a term best translated as proxy statue. This was a type of art associated with the Zen Buddhist tradition in Japan, where statues of Buddhist religious figures are depicted in their ceremonial robes, the goal being to portray the essence of said figures to their disciples after the former's death. Creating them requires impressive care and craft, as well as extreme familiarity with the visage of the original figure in question. When completed, the effect of the chinsel is quite striking. The statues look so realistic that if photographed from a position where the statue qualities themselves are not visible, they really do look like a photograph of the person in question. I'll post an example in the show notes, it's really very cool. Among all the various photos of his research that Nishikawa included in his book, one stood out to a lot of academics working on medieval Japan. Because while the subject of the statue looked a lot like, well, all of the others, shaved head, eyes closed in meditations, monk's robe draped around them, the subject was different from all the others because unique among them, she was a woman. Her name was Mugai Nyodai, also sometimes known as Mujaku. Those would be Dharma names, in other words, names taken upon joining the Buddhist priesthood. She lived from 1223 to 1298 CE, during Japan's Kamakura period and she is a remarkable and fascinating person both for what she accomplished herself and for what she represents. One of the few women of medieval Japan to get a place in the historical spotlight, a rarity made clear by the amount of attention her chin soul began to get after Nishikawa's book drew attention to it. It wasn't just Mugai Nyodai's prominence that was worth remarking on, but the fact that said prominence was not derived primarily from her relationship to a man. I'll quote here from Barbara Ruck's excellent article, The Other Side of Culture in Medieval Japan. Quote, In Japanese medieval history, as it is now written, women appear when they do at all because they are the mother, wife, mistress, or daughter of an important man. Almost all the rare exceptions are women who have written outstanding literary works that have somehow survived. Mugai Nyodai, however, represents a challenging case. Here is a woman of superb accomplishments in the ecclesiastical world, and yet no one seems certain of just which important man might have been her father or her husband." Unquote. Ruck goes on to note that because of this rather unique relationship to a male-dominated history, Mugai Nyodai's life takes on a rather unique role, as a sort of stand-in for the lives of other women from the highly educated and elite classes in Japan during this time period through which we can try to understand the world they operated in. So this week, that is what we are going to try to do. We're going to look at Mugai Nyodai's life, at her accomplishments as a part of the Buddhist clergy, and use them to see what we can learn about the roles and opportunities open to the women of medieval Japan, or at least those women with enough resources to be educated. Before we do that, though, we should probably talk a little bit about the relationship between women and the Buddhist clergy. That relationship, historically, is complex, to say the least. On the one hand, the Shakyamuni Buddha, the guy we think of when we say the Buddha, did supposedly ordain the first Buddhist nuns. Bhikkhuni in Sanskrit, 
bikuni in Japanese. Among other things, these acts put nuns at a higher religious status, so to speak, than a male layman, which is a pretty revolutionary leap. On the other hand, the Bahudatuka Sutra, attributed to the great Buddhist scholar Nagarjuna, flat out states that the Buddha said women cannot attain full enlightenment as Buddhas themselves. It is worth noting, though, that that particular sutra tends to be more central to the Theravada Buddhist tradition of South and Southeast Asia. East Asia, including the sect to which Mugai Nyodai belonged, is part of the distinct Mahayana Buddhist tradition. But that's not to say that Mahayana Buddhism embraces total gender equality. The various branches of the Mahayana tradition all have Buddhist nuns, but traditionally placed female monastic orders lower in the pecking order than male ones. It has been argued this was out of a desire to avoid making Buddhism so radical that it would attract the ire of the outside patriarchal world, rather than a genuine belief in female inferiority. But that particular argument is a whole can of worms to get into, and frankly I don't think there's a good way to definitively establish the motive either way. That said, Mahayana Buddhist sects do tend to emphasize the idea of the fundamental emptiness of everything in the world, which ultimately is an illusion hiding the true nature of the universe. That emptiness includes conventional binary categories that we use to make sense of the world, including, yes, male and female as distinct categories. There are also several very popular female or female-coded figures in the Mahayana tradition, and the associated Vajrayana traditions of Tibetan Buddhism, which is a whole other thing we're not going to get into. Of these, the most notable is probably Avalokiteshvara, or Guanyin in Chinese, or Kanon, more formally Kanzeon, in Japanese. Kanon is a bodhisattva, a type of saint-like figure whose desire to help all sentient beings attain enlightenment has resulted in them either putting off their final enlightenment, which would result in leaving the worldly cycle of rebirth and death to help others on the path, or putting off enlightenment altogether, essentially having all of the pieces of the enlightenment puzzle in place, but not putting them together until everyone else gets there too. That nature of the relationship between bodhisattvahood and the attainment of enlightenment and nirvana is a whole other theological can of worms which we are also not going to get into. Anyway, Avalokiteshvara specifically was actually a male-coded bodhisattva in the Indian Buddhist tradition, but in translation into Chinese and Japanese Buddhism, his association with compassion as a virtue resulted in his shift into a feminine figure. You often hear Kannon called a goddess of mercy in English language writing on Japan. And she is a very popular figure. In my highly unscientific opinion, outside of the Shakyamuni Buddha himself, She's the Buddhist figure I'd guess most non-religious Japanese people would be most easily able to recognize, certainly the one I have seen the most references to in my own day. The point of all this is to say that the historical relationship between women and Mahayana Buddhism, which is, again, the East Asian branch of Buddhism, is complicated. There's a hypothetical notion of gender equality implicit in the whole endeavor of attaining enlightenment, but there's also still the reality that the religion itself is fundamentally operating in a patriarchal atmosphere. In this, Buddhism actually does share an interesting, similar history with Christianity. On the one hand, the implicit promise of salvation for all was pretty revolutionary for early Christianity. Many scholars have noted 
that early on Christianity was a religion of slaves, freedmen, and women before it was co-opted into the power structure of the Roman Empire. A big part of the early spread of Christianity was what it offered to people traditionally denied any semblance of equality to their supposed social betters. And of course, nunneries were one of the few places in medieval Europe where women were able to organize their lives independently, or at least largely independently, of men. At the same time, of course, it's not like Christianity of any stripe has a history of perfect equality for the women within its monastic ranks. Anyway, that's a bit of a sidetrack. I just want to note that Buddhism is not the only religion that has a complicated history in terms of the relationship between women and salvation. When we get into the question of women in Japanese Buddhism, things get a little more complicated. Buddhism was introduced into Japan sometime in the 500s CE, with the earliest strains of the religion that arrived in the country being from the more esoteric Mahayana sects, meaning they're oriented towards mystic, often secret or closely held traditions. These would be sects like Tendai Buddhism, Tentai in Chinese, or Shingon Buddhism, Jenyan in Chinese. These esoteric sects generally held beliefs that reflected their, to use Barbara Ruck's words, quote, dismal history of discrimination against women, unquote. Women were considered to be defiling and banned from esoteric religious centers like the temple complex on Mount Hiei, northeast of Kyoto, which is associated with Tendai Buddhism, or the Mount Koya temple complex south of Osaka, associated with Shingon Buddhism. Both of these sects also maintained the idea that women were incapable of Buddhahood without an intervening rebirth as a man. However, during Mugai Nyodai's own lifetime, the winds began to shift rapidly, creating one of the few periods in Japanese religious history where women had a good shot at being welcomed as the spiritual equals of men. Three new sects of Buddhism burst onto the Japanese religious scene, all of which asserted that the older sects of Buddhism had erred in their treatment of the spiritual potential of women, among many other things. The first of these was Pure Land Buddhism, associated with veneration of the Amida Buddha. The second was Nichiren Buddhism, associated with veneration of the Lotus Sutra, a specific scripture particularly central to Mahayana Buddhism more generally, but of course particularly important to the Nichiren sect. We're not going to dive too deeply into the theologies of either of these branches of Buddhism, despite the fact that both are very interesting, simply because we don't have time to do them justice. But I do want to note that both emphasize a straightforward devotion to a specific figure, respectively either the Amida Buddha or the Lotus Sutra, over complex and time-consuming rituals, and thus had a lot of appeal as populist Buddhisms that developed followings among the lower classes. Part of their appeal, just like the appeal of early Christianity, was emphasizing the idea of spiritual equality among all who were capable of humble acts of veneration, which included women. The last of these new arrivals on the scene in Japan, though not really new in the broader sense, was the sect of Buddhism that Mugai Nyodai followed. Chan Buddhism, as it was known in China, though in the West it's better known by the Japanese name Zen. And to avoid confusion, I am going to consistently call it Zen Buddhism, even though, again, that name is only used in Japan. Zen is actually a fairly old school of Buddhism, originating sometime in the early Tang Dynasty of China or a bit beyond. This would be around the 500s or 600s of the Common Era. The name comes from a shortening of a two-character compound, Channa in Chinese, 
zennai in Japanese, which in turn is a transliteration of the Sanskrit word dhyana, or meditation. The earliest history of Zen is largely lost, confined to legends or oral tradition. According to said legends, Zen was brought to China in the 500s by the legendary monk Bodhidharma, who came to China from the West and who, if he existed, was probably a Greco-Afghani monk, and yes, there were Greek Buddhists, mostly descendants of Greeks who came East as part of the invasions of Alexander the Great. There are some particularly cool icons, showing things like Zeus crowning a Dharma wheel, a prominent symbol of Buddhist faith, with a wreath of victory, or Hercules defending the Buddha as he meditates, associated with this fascinating bit of history. Anyway, Bodhidharma is another of those historical figures we know nothing about for sure. It's all legends. Nor, frankly, do we know much about his immediate successors, whose stories are again largely confined to semi-legendary tales of the Buddhist past. What we do know is that by the middle of China's Tang Dynasty, the early 700s, Zen was an established presence in China. Interestingly, it didn't make much of an impact in Japan at this time, despite regular contacts between the Buddhist clergies of both countries. The Imperial Court of Japan, for example, would regularly sponsor Buddhist monks to go study in China. Why that is, frankly, is not clear. In those early days, Zen, like most other Buddhist traditions, was not particularly friendly to women, though not hostile to them either. From what I've been able to find, most of the Zen schools of China, like their counterparts in other traditions, treated women as inherently less capable of enlightenment than men. Zen schools also commonly positioned themselves as legitimate based on a documented lineage of mind-to-mind -mind teaching going back to Bodhidharma and from there to the Buddha, one that is largely fictional before the 700s, but which is central to the Zen claim that its practices are more authentic. That lineage, depending on the school, is either largely or exclusively male. There are women who appear in the documents of classic Zen, most notably the female disciple known as Iron Grindstone Liu, who plays a pretty prominent role in parts of the collection of Zen parables known as the Blue Cliff Record. However, examples like hers are few and far between. But when Zen came to Japan in the 1200s, it also went through a big shift thanks in large part to one of the people who helped popularize it, Dogen. Dogen was a master of what's called Tsaodong Zen, or Soto Zen in Japanese, which is one of the three most prominent Zen sects in Japan. We're not going to recap his entire life, see episode 220 for more on him, but I do want to note that among his revolutionary ideas, for example, deliberately rejecting patronage from the warrior class, for fear that it would taint the nonviolent nature of his teachings, Dogen also embraced women as the equal of men. Note, for example, this very clear passage from the otherwise famously difficult Shobo Genzo, a collection of Dogen's teachings. Quote, when we speak of the wicked, there are certainly men among them. When we talk of noble persons, these surely include women. Learning the law of the Buddha and achieving release from illusion have nothing to do with whether one happens to be a man or a woman. A nun who has attained the way is entitled to receive the homage of all, who would seek to learn from her. What is so sacred about the status of a man? The four elements that make up the human body are the same for a man as for a woman. You should not waste your time in futile discussions, 
about the superiority of one sex over another. For a text that is famous for esoteric topics like the number of moments in a snap of the finger, 65 if you're wondering, versus 6,400,099,980 moments in an entire day, as well as an entire chapter that is so impenetrable as to almost defy translation, what the hell even is a time being anyway, that's pretty straightforward. And for any Dogen fans in the audience, I kid, I actually really like his writing and find him to be one of my favorite thinkers in the Buddhist canon. It's also just a little funny how mind-bending some of it can be. Anyway, while Mugai Nyodai was not a member of Dogen's sect of Soto Buddhism, she was actually a Rinzai sect practitioner, his attitudes are indicative of the general shift in religious attitudes towards women that were happening in medieval Japan, which brings us, at long last, to the story of her own life. For what feels like the first time in, oh god, almost ever, I actually do get to say the following about a woman living in pre-modern Japan. We know what her given name was. She was born Adachi Chiono, though I will continue to call her Mugai Nyodai for clarity, in 1223 CE. And she was born into astonishingly good circumstances. The Adachi clan were longtime allies of the Hojo family of eastern Japan, who in the decades before Mugai Nyodai was born had managed to seize control of Japan's first warrior government and were now de facto rulers of the entire country. This privileged background allowed Mugai Nyodai to receive an elite education in both literary Japanese and, rarer for women, Chinese, which was the language of elite male culture and government. It also secured her a marriage to a branch of the Hojo clan, though it's not precisely clear which one. I've seen a few different names bandied about, though there seems to be a consensus at least that she married into a branch of the family based in Kanazawa, now a part of the city of Yokohama, south of modern Tokyo. But her husband, frankly, is not that important to her life story. The most important figure in kicking off Mugai Nyodai's life journey was one Mugaku Sogen, known also by the names Bukko Kokshi, or by the Chinese reading of his name Ushui Zuyin. As that Chinese name might imply, Mugaku Sogen was not born in Japan. He was born in China in 1226, in the city of Ningbo in modern Zhejiang province, about 200 kilometers or 124 miles south of Shanghai, if you know your Chinese geography. For those keeping track at home, this would make him three years younger than Mugai Nyodai, However, unlike her, he entered the Buddhist priesthood from a young age, specifically what is called the Linji sect of Buddhism, associated with the Chinese monk Linji Yishun, who I absolutely love, but do not have time to talk about here. In Japanese, this would be what's called the Rinzai sect, which did have a presence in Japan by the time Mugai Nyodai was born, as the monk Eisai brought it over in the 1180s. During Mugaku Sogen's lifetime, the Mongol invasions of China slowly ate away and finally destroyed China's Song dynasty, leading Mugaku Sogen to flee the country. He would end up in Japan as a spiritual advisor to Hojo Tokimune, a devout Rinzai Buddhist and the head of the Hojo clan, and the man who would eventually lead Japan to victory against two separate Mongol invasions. Mugaku Sogen came to Japan in 1279, when Mugai Nyodai was 56, and apparently really saw something in her. It's not quite clear how they met, all we know is that Mugaku Sogen began teaching her the basics of Zen. 
Again, how this came about is not clear. There's a traditional story associated with Mugai Nyodai's teaching and enlightenment, but large chunks of it are poorly sourced or impossible to verify. In that tale, Mugai Nyodai, who is by this point still going by her birth name Chiono, is a Zen aspirant who has come to a Zen temple in Mino province. There she's taken on as a servant who is impressed by the nuns of the temple and wants to learn from them. One older nun takes Mugai Nyodai under her wing, teaching her about the importance of single-minded meditation, a central feature of Zen, and the realization of the fundamentally singular and interdependent nature of all things. Here's a chunk from the nun's teaching, just to give you a flavor, as translated by Anne Dutton. This comes just after Mugai Nyodai has expressed concern about her own personal ability to attain enlightenment through her efforts. Quote, In fact, what is there to attain? In Buddhism, there is no distinction between a man and a woman, between a lay person and a monastic. Also, there is no separation between noble and humble, between old and young. There is only this. Each person must hold fast to his or her own aspiration and proceed along the way of the Bodhisattva. There is no higher way than this. You must not theorize about the words or teachings of the Buddhas and Masters. According to the scriptures, the goal is to attain Buddhahood yourself. These teachings say that meditation means to seek the Buddha within your own heart. According to the ancient worthies, the teachings of the sutras are like a finger pointing to the moon. The words of the patriarch are like a key that opens a gate. If one looks directly at the moon, there is no need for a finger. If the gate has been opened, there is no use for a key. A priest who is familiar with ten million scriptures uses not a single character word in meditation. Great learning and vast knowledge are only impediments to entering the gate of the Dharma. They lead to philosophizing and words. If you know your own mind, what teachings about the scripture do you need? The nun will eventually teach Chiono that any action can be carried out as a sort of meditation, allowing her a sort of walking meditation that culminates when, on the night of a clear full moon, she goes to draw water from a well. Her bucket breaks in the act, and the resulting splash erases the reflection of the moon on the water below. This moment, and the reminder that the moon, the bucket, all of it is an impermanent illusion, leads her to enlightenment, coincidentally on the same night that her nun teacher passes away. The poem she writes upon attaining enlightenment, which I am going to use Barbara Ruck's translation for, is as follows, quote, Toni kakuni takumishi oke no soko nukete Mizu yadorazu. No matter how you look at it, when the bottom of the bucket falls away, it will not hold water, nor will it house the moon. This is a pretty interesting little tale, but of course there are a few reasons to doubt its authenticity. First, the oldest known versions of it date from several centuries after the fact. Second, Mugaku Sogen himself appears only peripherally, he's mentioned offhandedly, as having said that Mugai Nyodai has a lot of potential. Given later events, which we'll talk about in a second, his relative absence from this story strikes me at least as odd. Third and most importantly, though, the details here mirror one of the most famous stories in the history of Zen, that of the sixth patriarch of Zen, the Chinese monk Kuenung, whose enlightenment and teachings are recorded in the Liuzu Tanjing, or Platform Sutra of the Sixth Patriarch. Kuenung, like Mugai Nyodai in the story, is a menial worker at a temple who envies the monks their time to meditate, 
but who discovers enlightenment through his own work. And like Mugai Nyodai, he goes on to surpass the monks by attaining enlightenment himself, which is recognized by the master of the temple, the fifth patriarch, who makes Huenung his dharma heir, despite the fact that Huenung is an illiterate man whose main job is cutting firewood. At one point in the traditional Mugai Nyodai story, she says that she too is unable to read or write, which given her social background we know is not true, this is almost certainly an insert to draw a connection between her and Huenung. Of course, even if the story does represent a later invention, it still tells us something very interesting about Mugai Nyodai, that she was considered influential enough to draw parallels between her and Huenung, one of the most famous figures in the history of Zen. It's not the only such case of this either. There's another legend about Mugai Nyodai that is equally dubious in terms of historicity, but which presents a parallel between her and a famous figure of the Zen tradition. In this tale, Mugai Nyodai made her way to one of the great Rinzai temples of Kyoto, called Tofukuji, founded by the famous monk Enni Bennen, who had gone to China to learn the secrets of Zen. Enni took her on as a monk, but ended up asking her to leave when other monks objected out of a fear that having women around would lead to accusations that the temple was a hotbed of indecency. Mugai Nyodai's offer to sponsor a convent on the grounds of the temple so that women would have a place, using her connections to the Adachi clan, was denied. So instead, she earned her place by scarring her face with a hot iron to prove her sincerity, at which point she was allowed into the temple. This story, again, is improbable for a few reasons, not the least of which is that her Chinzol statue shows no sign of such a facial scar. It's probably intended to draw a parallel between her and Hueka, the second patriarch of Zen, who was, according to legend, initially turned away by the monk Bodhidharma as a student, and was only accepted after he cut off his left hand in a gesture of sincerity regarding his motives in studying Zen. So again, another example of a legend we can't really verify, but the legend itself suggests a lot of regard for her abilities and accomplishments in the world of Buddhism. And indeed, she certainly was impressive in her own right, enough to really get the attention of the great Mugaku Sogen, because towards the end of his life he would offer her something truly spectacular. Specifically, prior to his own death in 1286, Mugaku Sogen recognized Mugai Nyodai as his Dharma heir. This is the same sort of relationship the fifth patriarch of Zen offered to Huenung, and it is a pretty important concept in Zen Buddhism. Remember when I talked about the idea of tracing lineages earlier? This is how those lineages are traced, through an oral tradition of masters recognizing their disciples as masters in turn. And Mugaku Sogen now recognized her as a master. This is when she gets the name Mugai Nyodai bestowed upon her by Mugaku Sogen, which is a part of this whole tradition. The Mu in her name, the character from Nothingness, comes from Mugaku Sogen's name, a way of marking this relationship. Now you might be wondering, where is her husband in all this? Isn't she married? Frankly, most of the stuff I've seen doesn't even discuss him or why she turned to religion in the first place. I do have a theory, but it's just a theory. Her birth family, the Adachi clan, had begun to drift away from the Hojo in the late 1200s, leading to an outright attack on the Adachi by the Hojo that largely destroyed the Adachi clan and their influence in 1285. It's quite possible, though this is just me theorizing again, 
that the downfall of her family is what led her to the world of Buddhism, which of course has plenty to say about the ephemeral nature of worldly glory and power and, well, everything. But again, just a theory on my part. It's also entirely possible that, for example, her husband died and she entered the priesthood as a result. That was not uncommon for widowed women during this time period, though most became nuns instead of monks and masters. What's not a theory is that her position as Dharma heir to Mugaku Sogen made Mugai Nyodai a Zen master, not a nun, mind you, which has a connotation of subordinate status to monks, but a master in her own right. After attaining enlightenment and becoming a Zen master, Mugai Nyodai would devote herself to the creation of abbeys, catering to women who wanted to study Zen all around Japan. Specifically, she would devote her attention to the creation of Keiji, a temple in southern Kyoto which would become the center of the Amadera Gozan, the Five Mountains Convent Association. This was intended to parallel the Five Mountain Monasteries that represented the five most important Zen temples in Japan. Eventually, the Amadera Gozan would expand to include Keiji, Tsugenji, Danrenji, Gonenji, and Erenji in Kyoto, as well as five more convents in Kamakura, Taiheiji, Tokeji, Kokuonji, Gohoji, and Zemyoji, plus their associated sub-temples. Keiji, the first abbey established by Mugai Nyodai, was where she was interred after her death in 1298, and it's where her Chinzo statue was kept until the Onin War, which burned a good chunk of Kyoto in the 1460s and 1470s. To keep it safe, the statue was moved to one of Keiji's subtemples, Hoji-in, where it remains to this day. Unfortunately, the Onin War did destroy a lot of other records about Mugai Nyodai herself. The convents associated with her continue to honor her legacy to this day, commissioning portraits and statues dedicated to their founder and patron, and holding special services commemorating the anniversary of her death, the 28th day of the 11th lunar month, if you're curious. The veneration of Mugai Nyodai continued to the end of the Edo period before being disrupted by the collapse of samurai rule, as well as the rise of a new government that, as we've discussed in the past, tended to attack Buddhist institutions which were very associated with the samurai in favor of promoting Shinto ones. However, veneration of Mugai Nyodai was revived in the late 20th century. But it wasn't just her own followers that revered her. One of the first eulogies to her memory written 100 years after her death comes from the Zen monk Zekkai Chushin, who in turn was a disciple of one of the most famous Rinzai Zen monks of his own age, Musou Soseki. Here's a bit of what he wrote, quote, With eloquence and a skill in dealing with students that was utterly free and untrammeled, she raised high her teacher Wu Shizuyen's enlightened mind seal. With great discernment and deep understanding, she established a splendid new training hall at Keiji. The means she used in instructing students were severe, her mind remaining constant amid the storms and waves of the karmic ocean. In coming, she had no origin. In leaving, she left no trace. She was not born in the past. She is not dead at the present. Over a hundred years' time has passed, and things have changed, but the true form of Mugai Nyodai is totally revealed in all its imposing majesty throughout eternity. Mugai Nyodai's life is fundamentally a testament to her own fierce drive to attain her goals, to be taken seriously as a disciple of Zen and to find enlightenment. 
It is also a fascinating window into a part of the story of medieval Japanese history that is often neglected, both because of the preferential treatment powerful men tend to get in the historical record and the biases in the sources available to us. Mugai Nyodai is one example of the kind of avenues open to elite women like her, and the ways in which they could, within the bounds of the system they operated under, seek to push back against being treated as second-class members of their society. And that makes her fascinating and well worth remembering. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks this week to new patrons Kurt, Allison, and Lois for donating to support the show. To join them, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit your ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at isaacmeyer.net, that's I-S-A-A-C-M-E-Y-E-R.net, or our Facebook page, facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Next week, there will be no new episode, as I will be taking a long-delayed family vacation, so I will see you all again in two weeks' time.